So I want this morning to continue the theme that we started uh, two weeks ago, which is that of looking at what the Buddha called views. You're really looking at views, beliefs, opinions that we grasp onto and that function in our lives in ways that typically uh, are connected with suffering. So it's this quite radical approach that questions our um, attachment to views, our grasping after views, our grasping after beliefs. Two weeks ago I asked you to see if you could come up with your list of top, my top five views or my top ten views. And how many people did that? It's a number of you. And we can, can, can talk about that um, and really see what there is about views that are problematic, how we investigate them, why they're a problem, how we can skillfully work with views and beliefs because they seem part of life. And yet we have this quite radical teaching from the Buddha. And I mentioned it last time. We have uh, a teaching that was expressed in the teaching of the poisoned arrow that I gave last time where the Buddha is um, asked about a series of metaphysical questions. And in his time those were standard questions in the Indian context about whether the world is finite or infinite, whether the world is eternal or not eternal, whether the Buddha lives after death or doesn't live after death. There were a series of questions and the Buddha (coughs) refused to answer them and he gave an analogy that essentially said these questions are in a way uh, unanswerable and they all go beyond what we can know and experience. He said that if someone would ask these questions and pursue them, it's like being shot by a poisoned arrow and asking the doctor Who shot this arrow? Was the arrow from someone from an upper caste or a lower caste? Was the arrow a long arrow or a short arrow? Was it made with feathers from a turkey or from another bird? What was the color of the arrow? And he goes, he goes off at length and he, he says continually, if someone would ask these questions, that person would die. It's really pointing to the way that for him, the central questions are pragmatic. They're about responding to suffering. In another teaching that I gave last time, I was here, there's the metaphor of the raft. And it's said that the teachings and the views connected with the teachings are like a raft that help one to travel safely to freedom. 
and he says, when you get to the other shore, would you put the raft on your shoulders and keep walking around with the raft on your head? <laughs> See, it's in actually some of these uh, passages where the humor of the Buddha comes out. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's uh, uh, the, the, the image of someone, someone who holds on to views. It's like someone who has, walks around with a raft on his or her head, you know. And he says, no, you would use the raft for the purposes of getting to the other shore. And you wouldn't hang on to that. You wouldn't hang on to the raft. And there are a number of other very powerful um, passages where something like that occurs. There's another passage where the Buddha is asked, is there a self? And you would think, knowing some of the Buddhist teachings, that the Buddha would, might say, haven't you been listening to my teachings? I teach anatta, not self. No. Pay more attention. And he, the Buddha sometimes was like that. He sometimes was quite direct. You know, he wasn't always nicey-nice. The Buddha's technical term. <laughs> he wasn't always like that. And he... Um, but in terms of this particular person asking, name, uh, it was a, a wandering yogi named Vachagata, the Buddha actually gave no response. And then he asked the question, is there no self? And he also gave no response. And the wanderer Vachagata then walked away. <laughs> and later, uh, the Buddha talked to his attendant, who was bewildered, and said, why didn't you respond to this man? And he said, if I had said that there is a self, he would be caught in the view of what the Buddha called eternalism, or grasping onto a view that there is a solid reality. And if I had given him the response, there is no self, he would have grasped onto the opposite view, which he called nihilism that nothing really exists. And he says, I didn't want to encourage him in either of those ways, and so I stayed silent. Because either of my responses would have led to a view developing. Quite strong passages um, that really suggest uh, quite a few things. They suggest the uh, deep pragmatism of these teachings, which I think must be what draws many of us. That there's not an emphasis on belief and adopting views and having a catechism and so forth, but rather there's an emphasis on what really helps to transform our suffering, what really leads to freedom. Because the Buddha at one point said, I don't give my stand on these series of metaphysical views. And the technical term that he used, he says, I don't declare anything on these views, these series of metaphysical views. You know, we could say another one was, is there a self or not a self? Or another one that he refused to answer, is the mind separate from the body or the same as the body? And these are views which uh, people pursue today. Right? 
And the Buddha said, I do not take a stand on these. I do not declare them. I don't enter in to that discussion because it's not fruitful, ultimately. It doesn't lead to the core aim of what I am about, he said, which is to um, transform suffering. Highly pragmatic, connected with the transformation of suffering. He said, I do declare in a very limited way. He said, what do I declare? I declare the teaching of the four truths, the four noble truths. He did use the word declare and said, these I uh, do offer. But they're not offered as views. They're offered as pragmatic guidelines, which is really the nature of the teaching. And some of you know, and I think we sometimes touch on this, the teaching that he gave to the people uh, called the Kalamas. Do you remember this? That this was, uh, I've always thought the Kalamas are like the people who live in the Bay Area. They're, um, they live at the crossroads. They, they lived at the crossroads in India, which meant they got all sorts of spiritual teachers coming through. Endless array of spiritual teachers, just like us, you know. You know, probably this weekend you have your choice of 63 different spiritual seminars, right? All of them promising something or other, ranging from free to incredibly exorbitantly priced. <laughs> and you have your choice, you know, and, you know, you may just choose to stay home and wrap presents or something, <laughs> or whatever. Uh, and, and so the Kalamas were like this. They were at the crossroads. They continually had teachers coming through, and they were en they engaged in this dialogue with the Buddha. Um, and here, here's a, this is from the actual text. There are some monks and Brahmins uh, who, visit, uh, who visit us. They expound and explain only their own doctrines, the doctrines of others they despise, revile, and pull to pieces. So it's views. Views are the center of their uh, activity. Some other monks and Brahmins also come. They expound and explain only their doctrines, the doctrines of others they despise, revile, and pull to pieces. Venerable sir, there is doubt, there is uncertainty in us concerning them. Which, which of these reverend monks and Brahmins speak the truth and which falsehood? You know, what do we make of this? Our heads are spinning with all these different teachings as the heads of many of us in the Bay Area are spinning. You know, should I do Zen practice with koans? Should I do qi, medical qigong? Should I just do mindfulness? Should I do concentration practices? Should I do more retreats? Should I get out in the world and help people? You know, should I respond to global climate change immediately? Should, should I, you know, but I, I haven't even got my holiday gifts yet. What? <laughs> how, do, how do I organize my spiritual life? It's, <laughs> I think, I think, you know, it's, um, you know, and then, you know, and then there were all these different views, different activities. What do I do? And here, so here's what the Buddha, how the Buddha responded to the Kalamas. He said, it is proper for you, Kalamas, to doubt, to be uncertain. Uncertainty has risen in you about what is doubtful. Come, Kalamas, don't go on what has been heard or acquired by repeated hearing nor upon tradition. 
2,600 years ago, saying don't base what you think and your views on religious tradition. Yeah. This rather um, doesn't happen too much in the history of religion. <laughs> Do not go upon what has been acquired by repeated hearing, nor upon tradition, nor upon rumor, nor upon what is in a scripture, nor upon surmise, nor upon an axiom, nor upon spacious reasoning, nor upon a bias towards a notion that has been pondered over, nor upon another seeming ability, nor upon, upon the consideration this person is our teacher. But rather, when you yourselves know these things are good, these things are bad, these things are blamable, these things are um, not seen well by the wise, when you have undertaken to observe these things lead to harm or suffering, then abandon them. And when you see that things lead to what is good, follow them. So he's basically saying, ground this in your own experience and be very careful about adopting views. Very strong, very strong position. You know, there's, uh, I'll read one more uh, version of that because it's, it's a radical position in a few ways. It's radical in terms of really looking carefully at one's views. And I'll get to that actually mo most of the rest of the um, um, talk. But it also, in a way, is saying, be careful even about adopting views that I teach and that come with a particular tradition. And so it's really setting up a questioning of whether Buddhists get attached to Buddhist views. Again, very uh, not so usual in the history of religions to say, the point is not even what we offer in this tradition, but it's rather to go radically into experience, very much see for yourself, and be careful about attachment to views, even our views, even so-called good views. You know, so we're going to really explore further what that means, what that teaching means, and how to practice it further. You know. So this is from um, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese teacher from the book Being Peace, which many of you know. And he has a list of 14 guidelines for an order that he started in the midst of the Vietnam War uh, called the Thiep Pan Order or the Order of Interbeing. And he has 14 guidelines for, essentially for daily practice, uh, which are quite, still quite inspiring. They're from about 1964, right in the midst of the war. And they concern uh, how to deal with conflict, speech, and so forth. His starting point is about views. His first guideline is about views. And here's what he says. Do not be idolatrous about or bound to any doctrine, theory, or ideology, even Buddhist ones. All systems of thought are guiding means. They are not absolute truth. That's how he expresses it. And he goes on to say, this precept is the roar of the lion. Its spirit is characteristic of Buddhism. It is often said that the Buddha's teachings is only a raft to help you across the river, a finger pointing to the moon, which is a reference to the Zen teaching that the teachings are fingers pointing to the moon. Don't get preoccupied by the finger, but rather look to the moon. 
And so a lot of, they would say, a lot of what happens in, when there is attachment to views, particularly religious or spiritual views, people spend all their time arguing about fingers. And they don't look to the moon. They forget about the moon. So don't mistake the finger for the moon. The raft is not the shore. So he's using that teaching that I mentioned before. If we cling to the raft, if we cling to the finger, we, we miss everything. We cannot, in the name of the finger or the raft, kill each other. Human life is more precious than any ideology, any doctrine. So the particular teaching here, it's helpful to look at. It's really asking us to look at our views. And it's helpful to think that views are quite... Uh, cover quite a wide spectrum, that, they're, that the, kind of the most obvious views are political or religious views, uh, that, and views that are held in some way dogmatically. You know, political ideologies, um, religious, religious ideologies, religious views. And what is being said here that we want to be careful about not, about really about two things, about not grounding more in experience and about grasping onto views. And we can grasp onto good views. And what we're going to see, I think, or what we perhaps know from our experience is that the long-term aim is not to get rid of views, but it's to hold them lightly. You know, that we, in a sense, we need certain views. I mean, it's, it's a view to say that global climate change is happening. Is that a view? Uh, we could say that it is. Is it grounded in experience? Pretty well. <laughs> Pretty well grounded in experience. But we can still fixate on that. You know? So it's really an invitation to say, what do I do with the views that I have about, about uh, global climate change or about um, you know, the way my friend behaved or about myself? And what's tricky about views is that some of them are more conscious than others. And so we can see that there are views like political or religious views, which may be rather explicit. But we may also have views that we carry, for example, about ourselves, which are somewhat unconscious. And we know this from psychology, that we may have views about ourselves that came from early childhood, in which I have almost an unconscious view that I'm not adequate, or I don't deserve love. and it could, or it could be uh, possibly the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm the greatest gift in this part of the world. <laughs> yeah. uh, and and those, those kind of views can determine behavior. Or I might have, you know, I mentioned the story last time of being in the swimming pool and having this really negative experience for me with, with a woman who grabbed my leg, for those of you who weren't there two weeks ago. Was, 10 years ago, and I still, whenever I see her, there's some, I, I have a view about her, right? Like, stay away. <laughs> right? or, you know, she may have a view about me, <laughs> you know, uh, and so forth. And, and we, we have these views about our friends, about our family members, about our coworkers, and we're really invited to see to what extent do I grab hold of the view? Because, again, the long-term intention is not to t- totally give up views. It's to give up attachment to views. And it's to give up grasping after views. 
And in the analysis of the Buddha, the real problem is the grasping after views. And it's, it's, it's said that actually in the analysis of the main forms of grasping that is given by the Buddha, there are four main types. And three of them have to do with views. The first is grasping on to uh, sense pleasures or pushing away, we might say, unpleasant experiences. That's very common and pervasive. But the, um, the views that uh, the, the other forms of grasping are first connected with these kind of speculative metaphysical views. That's a second type of grasping. A third type of grasping is grasping onto uh, rites and rituals and believing that rites and rituals somehow will totally do it. It's getting attached to them, having views about them. That, in the analysis of the Buddha, was the third main form of grasping. And the fourth main kind of grasping was connected with our, our more subtle views about ourself, some of, which, uh, some of which are more on the level of uh, identified by psychology, like I gave. There could be that view that I'm not really good or I'm... You know, I don't really deserve love or something like that. And there can be even the deeper and even more subtle and often more unconscious view that I am a separate self, totally disconnected from others or significantly disconnected. That, for the Buddha, was a kind of view which is not so consciously held. So you can see that the, the examination of views or opinions or beliefs can go into all these different territories. And it's real, and some of the views that we have, we hardly even know that we have them. And they open up to us as we look more deeply. One of the most powerful explorations of views after the teachings of the Buddha came about five or six centuries later. And I want to bring in a little bit of this history because it's just to introduce you further because it's not something I talk about so much. There's a teacher and writer named Nargajana who was uh, more connected with Mahayana tradition who came in about the second century. And his whole work was dedicated to the exploration of views and quite powerful. He took uh, dogmatic views as problematic. And he has this text, which is a beautiful translation by Stephen Batchelor in this book, which is in the bookstore called Verses from the Center. Uh, it's Nargajana, it's spelled N-A-G-A-R-J-U-N-A. And Nargajana took through, in 27 chapters, the main uh, views of his time, including Buddhist views, and showed how if you hold them dogmatically, they all lead to contradictions. Very, very subtle, supple mind. He took these views. So he took views like self or not self. And he took Buddhist views and showed that if you get attached to them, you, um, you end up in contradictions. He very much based that, and I'll, I'll see if I can bring this out. Um, he, brought, he brought this out by really showing how typically, particularly with metaphysical or political <laughs> views, they're organized into dualities. You know, so I have either a view there's a self or not a self. The world is finite or not finite. The world is eternal or not eternal. There's a God or not a God. You know, 
the public option is good or not good. <laughs> One of the major metaphysical issues of our time. So, and, and what Nargajana was trying to show that when you hold dogmatically onto a view, as opposed to holding it lightly, when you hold dogmatically onto a view, because of the nature of language, one tends, because concepts come in pairs, to, to really hold one concept, you actually imply its opposite. So for me to say, um, for me to say, um, let's see, there is um, no self, I have to assume the very concept of the self for it to make sense. He's basically saying that concepts are relational. They're defined in relationship to each other. And when we actually buy into a whole system, one side of the equation only makes sense if the other one is permitted to exist. I don't, I don't know if I'm explaining this quite so well, but it's, it's, that probably would take a longer time. But it's something about what he actually did was he showed, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe one of the examples where we can see that is more of a practical example. It's like the um, relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union. They formed a system where they defined themselves in opposition to each other. And because it was a system, and the United States says, we're good. And the Soviet Union says, we're good, they're bad. It's a little bit like the, the relation now with Islam. You know? And we define, our, the United States defines itself in a certain way, but its very identity depends on the Soviet Union existing. If the Soviet Union ceases to exist, as later happens, there's a deep crisis of meaning. And you know, it's really a question, who are we if we don't have an enemy? What will the Pentagon do if we don't have an enemy? <laughs> you know, and this it's really it can be understood in the sense of them each defining, you know, it comes as a system. And when you def- try to hold on to one side of it, you're actually needing the other for it even to make sense. I think it, that kind of practical example maybe brings that out a little bit more. So what actually happens after 1989, the United States searches for another enemy. Is it, you know, Manuel Noriega? Nope, not so good. Narco-traffickers, not quite adequate to justify billions of dollars of defense budget. Now, who's going to be our enemy? Now, after 2001, there's an answer to that question. It solves the problem. I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek here, but I think that, it, I think that kind of practical example maybe brings it out. So yeah, I think we can probably see this when we have opposition to another person. We kind of um, need that other person to define ourselves as right. (laughs) Um, And so Nargajana did this for all the main uh, concepts of his time. And he showed how if you really take just one side, a one-sided view, it's going to end up in contradictions. And so, in a sense, presuppose its opposite for it even to make sense. So the very nature of language is dualistic. And we, it, there's a tendency 
when we have um, a view to be one-sided, even if it's a good view, even if it's a Buddhist view. And so the, the, um, the invitation really is to look at our views and see where we're grasping. And I think and that's, that's really the pointer uh, of the morning, is to, is to really ask, how do I relate to the views in my life? Last time, I gave two practices. One is to look, simply see how do views appear in my experience? What are my main views? Am I attached to them? Where am I attached? How am I attached? You know, and it would be an invitation to look carefully, you know, and there may be, again, there could be a political view. It could be a view about, again, about, could be about climate change or something quite, you know, that is actually um, maybe well-grounded in experience. But to what extent do I hold on to it? To what extent do I fix it? To what extent, when I'm in a discussion with someone, do I have more certainty than is really justified? That's one way we can look at it. When do, when I'm making in a, in a political discussion or a spiritual discussion, do I exaggerate? Do I add on to what's actually there? To what extent am I attached to the view? To what extent am I not open to another's view? What do I find when I look carefully? And we, the second practice I gave was to take the experience of an opposition of of views with another person as a starting point for inquiry and to see to what extent is there a tendency when you find yourself with a different view to polarize and to instantly think I'm right, this person's wrong. Some of us may go in the opposite direction. Polarization of views, I'm necessarily wrong, this person may be right. Probably most of us do the first. Go and, and to what extent, when we're doing that, is there some, are we grasping onto the view? Is there some exaggeration in how we actually hold the view, present it? To what extent are we emotionally invested in winning? To what extent, when we have a polarization of views, is there a war of sorts or a fight? To what extent are we open to others' views? And the practice that was given was to, is to do something which um, has been very helpful practice personally, which is when I find myself, and I, don't, I have to say I don't always do it, but uh, I like to remember to do it. It's when I find myself in an opposition, take it as a starting point for practice rather than war, or rather than polarization, and say, um, it's kind of to do some inner practice. Why is there so much charge here? What's there? Sometimes there may be something beneath the surface which is connected with the view, which is more almost unconscious material. You know, it's not hard to see that if we've had some pain in our past related to a view, we may hang on to the view more because we feel it as protective in a way. You know, we may have a political view that comes out of fear, as is often the case. You know, and if I would actually go inside, I would have to touch the fear. And I use the view as a way to get out of fear. And so when we have our practice, we can actually touch sometimes what's beneath the view. We sit with it, we say, and we can sometimes see what's there. 
what's beneath the view. And we can do this when we can t take this instance of a difference with another person as a starting point for inquiry. You know, we can ask, what's beneath the view? Is there something I can potentially learn from this person? Is there any truth whatsoever in the other person's view? And it's a very interesting kind of inquiry. It really changes things. I'm offering this partly before holiday get-togethers. <laughs> Uh, but it really changes things. So it's a, very, it's a very powerful practice to do. And it doesn't mean at all that you give up the, what's valuable about your view. But you, to look and again, the problem is not so much the view, it's the attachment to the view or the grasping. That's really what is taken as problematic. And, and so there, there are other practices might be really to listen to others' views. Uh, to, to see, can I assemble the wisdom of many views. You know, some, I think that there's actually an aspect of wisdom in just listening to many views and being able to hold many together. Really moving out in a way of that need to have my view versus your view and my view win. Can I be in a place where I hold many views and still act on what seems wise to me. Yeah. I think ultimately, uh, maybe a last practice I'll mention, is the practice of holding all of this with compassion. You know, bringing in the element of compassion and knowing that a main reason why we grasp is because there's pain, often not clearly known. I remember once, um, talking with Stephen Batchelor, and he was talking about fear. And fear actually isn't talked about very much by the Buddha, interestingly. It's not talked about so much. But we were talking, exploring that, to what extent is fear the emotional dimension or the emotional counterpart to ignorance? In other words, where there is ignorance, there will tend to be fear. And we can have some compassion because, and I think we can see this um, often maybe more in the political realm or sometimes in terms of dogmatically held religious views that we can have a sense that it comes out of something unprocessed, maybe some fear, some confusion, could be a fear of change, it could be some past experience that was very difficult. And so I think the ultimate... Um, stance or maybe another practice is just to be in the field of views with that sense of compassion, really being able to hold all of this area and understand that where there's grasping, there's typically going to be some pain, some fear, some uncertainty, and that we all share in that. So those are some practices. I think the starting one is mindfulness, just exploring, and then some of these other more active practices of inquiring when we have this polarization of views, actively listening to another person, asking what's there when I notice that polarization, and ultimately holding it with compassion. So I think I'll stop here, and let's see if I have something to... I think one, maybe one thing to finish with the, the end of the... Uh, the end of, the, of Nargajana's book, he has 
a short passage that I think I'll read. Let's see how Stephen Batchelor translates it. He invokes the example of the Buddha and he, he says this, to the Buddha possessing compassion who taught the Dharma for the destruction of all dogmatic views, to the Buddha I humbly offer reverence. So it's really how he summarizes these 27 chapters. He talks about the destruction of all dogmatically held views and he points to how that opens up compassion and opens up wisdom. So it's a deep and subtle teaching that I think can go quite, it's, what I love about it is that it's both accessible and it goes deeply. You know, we don't need to do uh, five years of meditation retreat to have access to, to this teaching. It's accessible. We can notice where we hold on to views very easily. And yet, if we follow it, it goes quite deeply. It can go very much into what we are hardly conscious about and open up those dimensions for the, for the sake of greater freedom and greater compassion for ourselves and others. So I'll stop with that and just have us uh, sit for a minute or so. Thank you so much um, for your attention. Please. Yes. Or, yeah. or, or be careful about yeah. grasping. Yeah. My um, training background is in linguistics yeah. and, and in um, translation. Yeah. And so I'm, I have a view that comes out of that training that translation is very, very difficult. And the more, the, the greater the distance in both time. Mm-hmm. And in um, language difference, the, the greater the difficulty of translation. So when I hear this passage, I'm very, I'm a little, <laughs> I'm a little bit skeptical because of the great, um, <coughs> basically, in the Eastern tradition, as I understand it, 
they make a great distinction between ordinary knowledge and what they call, like they use some term, it's called shruti, which, which basically is like intuitive knowledge that comes through the minds and is expressed by these great teachers mm-hmm. or enlightenment. So they make a great distinction. So that knowledge is considered in a different category. Mm-hmm. And um, so when it comes to the translation, I don't hear that, you know, there's no reference to that kind of distinction. So the translation of the translation of holding the teachings so that there's no distinction made between like there's ordinary views like in a way global warming is about something concrete going on in the world Mm -hmm. warmth you know Mm -hmm. Um, whereas when you talk about spiritual teachings Mm -hmm. that's intangible that's not something Mm -hmm. concrete There's no distinction Remind me of your name? Deborah. Deborah. Uh, So did everyone hear the question? Um, Deborah was essentially asking, uh, I think she was partly interested in in the translation, but really asking, uh, is there some distinction between different kinds of views, such as more ordinary views and more... um, views which might be in the, um, well, in some of the traditions of India, there, there are certain views which are, you know, taken to be the views of sages, let's say, and are maybe by some held differently than, than ordinary views, like views on, you know, scientific views, let's say, on climate change. It seems that the <clears throat> um, in some of in s- what I read by the Buddha, there seems to be a um, uh, radical stance of not accepting that distinction and saying all views are problematic if we attach to them, all views whatsoever. And so he, in that passage to the Kalamas, he singles out tradition. That would certainly include the uh, views of sages, when he says, don't believe in tradition, don't believe in uh, what the teacher tells you. That's a radical challenge of any view that says that one should um, hold on to a view because it comes from tradition or from a particular person. So there seems to be a radical stance of look into this for yourself and don't accept anything. Um, that being said, he himself is offering some guidance. <laughs> so so I, I admit there's some levels of subtlety here and, you know, level upon level upon level. But, uh, but, but still, I think, I think he, and the Buddha saw himself as differing from the traditions of India quite, uh, in a quite clear way. And, and so I think that he, that, uh, what we have here really is is um, is radical in that way. Yeah. You know. Thank you, Deborah. Yeah. Other reflections, questions, or just some sharing of what you found when you looked at your own views.
What are your top five <laughs> that you found? Please, uh, Karen. I think the curious thing I noticed immediately was, no, I don't want to look at my views. Don't mess with my views. Yeah. Yeah. And then just be interested and reassure myself that I, I didn't have to necessarily make a major overhaul. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. That's how, how many people experience something like that when you actually look at your views and say, you know, like, here I am, okay, I come on Wednesday mornings, I'm expecting sort of, you know, I mean, Wednesday morning's probably good if I kind of feel energized and so inspired, right? And, you know, you know, if I if we get probably two out of three, probably good enough to keep coming back. I'm, I'm joking. But, <laughs> but um, you know, it could be a little unsettling to look at your views, right? Could be um, really, uh, especially to say, where am I dogmatically attached to certain views? Me? <laughs> Moi? <laughs> Uh, attached to views? Um, how about attached to Buddhist views or spiritual views? You know, so it's, it, it can be unsettling. I think there is something that uh, when we feel a little unsettled, it could be a, a sign that we are actually going more deeper, more deeply. Yeah. Um, and so, so thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Did anyone else feel a little unsettled? Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Please, Mark. Yeah. Well, something a little bit different. I, uh... I'm apt to understand something my wife may say to me as a criticism. Yeah. And often it's not really. She has something else in mind, but I feel it as a criticism. Yeah. Now, I, I'm fitting this into the category that we're talking about. Yeah, maybe yeah. Rightly or wrongly. Yeah. It's just an example. Of, but yeah. One that I, I find is very powerful in my, uh, in my yeah. daily experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems so. How would that be a view, or how, can you, okay. you want to go a little further with that? Because no, um, I, think, I think you're right, yeah. but, but let's unpack it a little bit. Okay. Well, I think for me it's, uh, considering it to be a criticism is a view. Mm -hmm. That is to say, I've interpreted what this person is saying as criticism. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've given it a, a meaning that she may not have attached to it, mm -hmm. but I Mm -hmm. And I see that, in turn, I see that this comes out of, uh, probably for me, I think, I mean, I think I can even trace it back to some sort of childhood experiences mm -hmm. of feeling criticized mm -hmm. um, by my father specifically. Mm -hmm. you know, there's this goal, you know, thing goes way, way back like this, and then here it is, it appears in the, in the present. Uh, somebody makes a remark which is, neither here nor there. I mean, there may be, we may be disputing something mm -hmm. or differing in some way. <coughs> That's often the case. But I'm taking it personally. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I think it's an, a good example. It's kind of a subtle example, right? Uh, but it's, it's like when I get, when someone, when I feel judged, let's say, how is this, uh, how am I making this into a view? 
I think we make it into a view, first of all, when we don't hold it lightly. You know, to hold it lightly might be to say, is there something, some feedback that I can get from this that might be helpful? That would be probably to hold it a little more lightly. To hold it more heavily and is so we make it more absolute. And something in our mind says, this is the absolute truth, right? <coughs> and it's threatening, or it, or it may, and it may be that I have something unconscious. You know, if I have an unconscious belief that I'm flawed and someone judges me, it's going to trigger that unconscious belief. And part of me is going to say, it's, it's really true, completely true. They've really seen me, and part of me is going to resist it. But I think what is characteristic is making it, kind of exaggerating it, making it into more certain or more absolute than it actually is. And we have, I think, strong tendencies to do that. So I think some of that's this, this is more of the psychological dimension, but I think psychologically we may tend to um, take um, views about ourself as in some way absolute. And other people may mean them that way <laughs> also. May or may not. They may or may not, yeah. But they may very well mean them that way. If they're being judgmental, they probably mean this is the absolute truth about you. Shape up. You know? And so I think it's, a, it's an interesting example just to see to what extent am I... Any time that we take a view and information and opinion and exaggerate it, make it bigger, that's getting into the territory of views. Whether we do it with our own view in order to win an argument or someone else says something to us. Um, yeah. Interesting, huh? <laughs> yeah. Any other examples from please? Yeah. Yeah. I can hear many times that um, the opposite. I think about a lot of liberals. You can hear a lot of voices and they stand at the other side and, and really hear all the voices working yeah. at the same time and you can't hear, you cannot take action. Yeah. Um, so the attachment, I think that's that's the one that really stands out. That's right. How to how to that's yeah, great. You know, because it and that I think that's right. That the focus here, the focus on the criticism of views, is on the attachment or the grasping, yeah. and that occurs in a number of different ways. One way it occurs is when we adhere to a view that uh, goes way beyond any evidence, any grounding for the view. That's what the Buddha thought was the case with metaphysical views. It goes way beyond any possible way to ground it. Uh, and, and so we grasp onto the view even though there's no real firm basis for it. That's one way that we grasp. Another way is just to feel some kind of certainty or righteousness, perhaps. We can grasp on in that way. And, and, but I think it's... Um, I think it's really important to say that we, we have views, we need views, they help us navigate. You know, like I said, we can have a view, uh, global climate change is happening, right? I think we can know the difference between holding a general view which seems supported by evidence as opposed to
to grasping onto that same view. I can grasp onto that view. It's like in an argument that would mean when I exaggerate or I, or I find myself dismissing what the other, one, other person's perspective is. That would be a kind of grasping. And we can do that with views which for the most part are helpful. That's, that's what's interesting or, and important. You know, that, that's what's interesting. I can, I can um, you know, or we can have ethical views that are helpful, right? Quite helpful to say, this is harmful, or don't do this, or racism is bad, right? I can still grasp onto those views. But it's very muddy, even if it's scientific evidence, obviously, or moral or ethical question. That's, yeah. That's, that's another whole view that it's very hard to get into. I mean, if you have a conflict and you have to take action, obviously yeah. it's vast, so... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I think, I think your, your focus is helpful for this because it can feel just like a quandary, like, oh my gosh, just, just a mess, you know. What am I going to do with all my views? But I think the, the um, you know, you know, you know <laughs> I have a view, should I, I have a view that I should go home and have lunch. Is, am I attached to that? What should I, what should I do? I have a view that I should leave this hall eventually. But maybe that's an attached view. Should I just stay here, wander around? <laughs> it can get confusing, right? So I think what we're mostly pointing to is look for where there's the grasping her attachment. And, uh, and I think, you know, the first step in this, it's a, it is a huge area, is really just to investigate. It's really to look, bring mindfulness to views. What do we find? Um, where am I attached to views? What's a wise way to use views? What's, that's really, and it's, it, I think you're right, it's, it's complex. Not, it's, it's not easy, but it's actually finding where there's grasping or attachment. And again, there are a lot of subtle issues that we have looked at over the years here, like what's the difference between attachment and commitment, right? Commitment is something, what's the difference, right? So here I think we want to um, mostly just start investigating. And I think it's very helpful, you know, when there's a lot of family time upcoming. <laughs> so, or when, there, when there's any charge. So I think that's, that's the way I would, I would want to, uh, as it were, send us out into, into the world, saying investigate, particularly, look, where, what, where are views strong in my experience? Where do I seem to hold on to them more tightly? Where is their grasping? Uh, what do I do when I find myself uh, having an opposed view in relation to someone else? What do I do with that? You know, I think that's really the, that would be uh, like a, a learning strategy to focus there. You know, and I think then these more subtle or more complex parts, as we in- inquire, they, I think they fall in place. And I think it's actually a crucial, this whole thing is such a crucial issue for our world. You know, our world is torn apart by people who are attached to views. You know, it's really, it's, um, so I think it's a very, very crucial area. And how can we explore these subtleties? Because people have a sense, if I don't hang on to my view, there's nothing, right? And I think what we're looking for here is kind of a middle territory. Buddha called this a middle way. It's a middle way between either holding on tightly to views or just pushing all views away and saying, 
nothing holds. There's a middle territory, a middle way. Not easy always to articulate, but that's what we're exploring. Yeah. So thanks for your attention. Let's just sit for 30 seconds to finish. Invite what was helpful from the morning, any insights and any intentions that you might have to be with you now. And we finish by recognizing that we do this not just for ourselves but for others as well, and we offer the fruits of our explorations out beyond the boundaries of Spirit Rock, out into the world, where these explorations are really crucial. We offer the fruits of the morning for the benefit and healing and freedom from fear of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.